This is the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast for May 2nd, 2019. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Terzakian. We've got a lot to talk about today. Yeah, lots going on in Alberta here with Premier Kenny taking office this week. And, of course, we're going to talk about the price of oil. That's been making moves. There's a lot of geopolitics going on. We're going to talk about the Iranian situation and the U.S. sanctions. That's right. And the supply and demand picture as it looks when we consider that there may be some barrels from Iran coming out of the market. Right. And supply minus demand is price. So we'll talk about uh, the price of oil as well. What's going on with Premier Kenny in the first couple of days? Well, it's only been a few days, but lots of headlines. Just to give you an example, I got into the office this morning. I opened up, you know, my daily email to look at the headlines yep. <laughs> of the day. And here's just some of them. Kenny throws down the gauntlet on his first day by proclaiming a law to turn off the taps. Yeah, that's the taps to BC. <laughs> that's right. So turn off the oil to BC through the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And related, the next headline, BC files constitutional challenge to Alberta's law to cut off the oil shipments. So yeah, there's already must, been a response. Uh, their lawyers must have been up all night. Yeah. First thing in the morning. The uh, other big news is uh, the tanker ban, C-48, C-69. Jason Kenney was in Ottawa today talking about those things, talking about C-69 being a disastrous piece of legislation and so on. And of course, there's that whole issue about the hard cap on the oil sands emissions. It's 100 megatons, which was instituted by the Notley government. Mm -hmm. And we talked about that actually in our Alberta government uh, policy podcast a couple weeks ago. And uh, there was a fair bit of talk that in terms of uh, also removing the carbon tax, that this emissions cap would also be removed off the oil sands. But I think there's quite a bit of pushback on that. Well, and actually, even uh, Jason Kenney, when he took the premiership a couple of days ago, talked about that maybe, you know, they could reconsider that. Yeah. And the feds definitely want them to keep it in place. Yesterday, we learned that if we didn't keep the cap in place, that in-situ oil sands projects would be part yeah. of the C-69 list of projects that fall under it, where before, Alberta government could have just approved those on their own. Yeah, I can yeah. tell you that the federal government is absolutely adamant that that cap has to stay on it. I don't think it's a hill to die on for Alberta. I mean, it's only about 70% of the emissions to the cap. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like we're about like, 70 million tons. Out of the 100. Yeah, yes. and of course, there's been some new projects. That 70 million tons is a dated yeah. number. The last inventory is a 2016 number, so it's a little higher than that today. But as we said, with all the efficiency improvements in the oil sands and the fact that growth is slowing a bit, I don't think we're going to blow through that cap. I don't think you could blow through it, uh, probably not even in the next five or 10 years. So I think that you'll probably see that issue go quiet. But really, probably the most consequential thing for oil companies anywhere is the price the price of oil. So we should probably talk about that quite a bit. We've got the situation globally now where geopolitics, something that had gone quiet for a few years, is now back in the headlines, dominantly in Venezuela, but particularly with these Iranian sanctions and the lifting of the waivers by President Trump against the countries who were allowed to be importing over and above the sanctions oil from Iran, countries like China, countries, what are some of the other ones? India, Turkey. Yeah. China's about half of, of all the current exports yeah, yeah. from Iran. So what's the situation there? Well, you know, first, I think we should just talk a little bit about the history of these sanctions, because I, I think it's good to get the context. But Iran was exporting about a million barrels a day of crude oil prior to President Obama and the EU negotiating a nuclear deal in 2015. After mm -hmm. that, they grew their exports to about 2 million barrels a day. But about a year ago, Trump 
pulled out of Obama's deal and reimposed these sanctions. And then Iran's crude oil exports fell in half. So currently, they're about 1 million barrels a day. Exporting 1 million barrels a day. Of crude oil. That's Mm -hmm. right. And like I said, half to China. Right. Next biggest is India. And that's what President Trump wants to take that million barrels down to zero. That's right. And he had threatened to do this in October Mm -hmm. and November of 2018, then changed his mind at the last minute. And that's part of what caused the oil price to go from like $70 U.S. for WTI down to $42 by Christmas Eve because everyone in the market thought that all these Iranian barrels was coming off the market. So the Saudis started to increase their production. And then when we found out we weren't going to lose these barrels, there was an oversupplied market and the price just fell. It just yep. goes to show you the volatility of oil. And I think we should just sort of step back and offer some context, as I usually like to do for our listeners. You know, we're talking about a million barrels, two million barrels. The world is consuming now well over 100 million barrels per day. We broke through that barrier, I think, last year. So on 100 million barrels per day, all it takes is a million barrels a day to move the price of oil 10 to $15. If we're in surplus. Yeah, and, and that's yeah, what happened yeah. because— Saudi Arabia and others in OPEC had increased their production, anticipating the supply coming off. So what, plus, what a great change in the price. What a great change in the price. 1-2% oversupply. Right. And I mean, you take ourselves back to late 14, early 15, the price of oil was $100 and it's coming crashing down. Why? Because the numbers are coming out and the world is oversupplied by mid-15, I think it was 2 million barrels per day. So 2 million on 100 and you get the price of oil coming crashing down from a hundred dollars a barrel down to I think it dipped as low as thirty-two or something momentarily. It was so under these, thirty dollars. These actually. sorts of things are very consequential, and so the removal of Iranian oil off the markets is important. But there's a big geopolitical play here too, because you know the Saudis have spare capacity to fill in the market share. The Russians want to get in the action, and of course there's the Permian. So how does the supply side fit into this? Without Iran, the market actually looked pretty well supplied, despite the fact there were losses from Venezuela, which is down hmm. a lot, down about from 1.5 million barrels a day in January to only about uh, 0.9 million barrels a day in March. So Yeah, that's dire. So we lost about 600,000 barrels a day from Mm -hmm. Venezuela. But even then, there's still a lot of oil. If you look at what the OPEC producers plus the non-OPEC, mostly Russia, were producing in the end of 2018 when they thought they were going to lose those Iranian barrels, Mm -hmm. it was about 1.5 million barrels a day more than they are today. And so we can, you know, take those Iranian barrels out, And those other producers, we know they can produce that much. They recently have produced that much. And they can just substitute that. And on top of that, Saudi Arabia still has a million barrels a day of spare capacity, according to the official numbers. Now, there's always some concern if they really can produce that much oil. Basically, production capacity they keep in reserve to be available if the oil markets need it. Right. They just turn some valves and fill up a few more tankers a day. And that is the uh, spare capacity. And really, there's only a handful of countries that have any meaningful spare capacity. And Saudi Arabia is one. Russia's probably another. Or do they have any? Well, that's the interesting thing. So we talk about these OPEC cuts. So just to kind of remind you, back in December of 2018, OPEC and Russia agreed to cut their production by about 1.2 million barrels a day. This is because of Mm -hmm. the news that Iran wasn't really going to lose the production that they Mm -hmm. thought. And it's been a very big success because they've been able to cut their production, in fact, even more than that. But when you actually go through the countries that have made the cuts, this is the vast majority of this cut is being done by one country, Saudi Arabia. They actually agreed, their agreed cut was like 0.3 million barrels a day in the deal. Mm -hmm. And they are down about 0.8 million barrels a day. And all the others together are only down about 0.3 million barrels a day for the rest of OPEC. And Russia is only down 100,000 barrels a day. So the key thing here is this is all about Saudi Arabia. They've cut to make the markets balance. And um, 
you know, the others really have kind of been getting, being free riders, right? Making very small cuts, but getting a lot higher prices. Yeah. You and I have followed this market for a long time. And Saudi Arabia has always been the, quote, swing producer. Because most of the other guys, they just have had zero spare capacity. They just don't have uh, a lot of spare room to move. And actually, in the current world order where the price of oil has fallen over the last few years, many of these countries are not investing as much as they used to back in the ground. So the sort of the natural declines are kicking in in some of these countries. And so there is actually a tightness forming a little bit in uh, in the rest of the world, isn't there? Yeah, well, there is a little bit of space, uh, Kuwait, UAE, Iraq. You know, maybe they could add another 0.2, 0.3 million barrels a day because they have cut a little from what they were back in November. And, you know, Russia has barely cut at all. I mean, part of this whole deal was, you know, Russia had to have their fair share of these cuts, right? Well, you know, it doesn't seem like there's a big uh, share that they're taking at this point. Just just out of curiosity, and here's a funny stat. I mean, what what, what did you say Kuwait was? So 100,000 barrels 100,000 barrels. Let's put this in perspective. When the Notley government put on the, the curtailment back in December, the cut that Alberta on its own. And Alberta, by the way, is the uh, sixth largest producer of oil in the world on its own. Yeah. Uh, Alberta cut 300 and was it 350 or 375, 8%? 325. 325. Yeah. So three times as much as, uh, as Kuwait has cut. Just to put Alberta's presence in the world order of uh, oil production. Yeah. And actually, their, the Alberta cut was the same cut that Saudi Arabia had agreed yeah. to, and they yeah. ended up making yeah. a much bigger yeah. cut, or three times more than Russia has I cut. Know. So we've got a situation where Iran is looking like it's down. The sanctions are biting. There are these customers like China and others who are reliant on Iran, scrambling to find supply. But, you know, in my opinion, I mean, these sanctions can only go so far Countries that are under sanction typically find clever ways of getting their oil out. Like, isn't there going to be sort of like cheating behind the scenes, as we'll call it, or or leakage? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be very hard to go to zero exports. And already when this news came out, China reacted right away saying, you know, that U.S. can't do this. And, you know, they're in some very sensitive talks right now with the trade negotiation that they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I would expect there'll be certain countries uh, like China and India that maybe continue to take some crude oil from Iran. The other thing that will be very interesting is the OPEC group— Saudi Arabia mainly, uh, got quite burned last time by just believing that Donald Trump was going to do what he said he was going to do. Mm -hmm. So when he announced he was driving the exports to zero, you know, they went ahead and started adding supply to the market. And then he changed his mind in November and prices crashed. So I think it's, they're going to be very cautious this time, only adding barrels to the market as they actually see the Iranian exports be cut back, very cautiously trying not to oversupply the market. And so this could lead to a tight market in the short term. If Trump's sanctions really bite and we see those imports come off quickly, there may not be, you know, the resulting uh, increase from the OPEC group quite at the same timing. So we could have a bit of a tight market for a time. We could, uh, but there is another actor in this whole big stakes game of oil in the world, and that's the United States, you know, further to our last podcast on the Permian Basin where you were on the ground and we talked about the potential there. And so I think Saudi is also going to be very cautious in terms of what is going to come out incrementally from the Permian at these higher prices. So U.S. crude oil output is forecast to rise by 1.2 million barrels a day right now in 2019. 1.2. Yeah, but now, now that is. is lower than last year where it was 1.6 right. million barrels a day. But, you know, when those forecasts were put out, these are a little bit dated now, the outlook was that oil prices would be in a lower range right. than, you know, maybe like $55 WTI. Now it's looking more like 
today's mm. price, 60 to $65. And will that result in more supply growth in the second half right. um, than what we expect? So that's definitely something but, they're going to be looking at. So we'll come to price here in a minute, but let's just put the numbers in context again here. So we're saying that the Iranian number has come down already by a million. I don't think he's going to get all million barrels out, but that's his yeah, goal. Yeah, the point I'm trying to make is that that is going to be potentially completely offset by the Permian rising by more than that, 1.2 million barrels a day in yeah. 2019. Yeah, but the yeah. other piece is demand's rising too. Right. To absorb Okay, so we're going to talk about that now? Yeah, let's talk about oh, demand. Great. Because that's the other piece. So what is OPEC or Saudi going to be looking at? They're going to be looking at how much Permian's going to grow, but also how much demand's going to grow to sop up some of this yeah. capacity. And and on other podcasts, I mean, way back, probably six months ago, when we first started, we talked about the demand side of the oil equation. And that really, it's not a question of whether or not demand is going to grow. It's a question about how much. Is it 1.4 million barrels a day? Is it 1.2? In other words, the 100 million barrels a day, which was already old news that we consume every day. The question is, is it going to 101.4 or 101.2 or or, uh, whatever the number is? We always watch the International Monetary Fund, IMF, they put out these outlooks for economic growth. And in mm-hmm. April, there was a downward revision. So now they're expecting global economic growth to be a little bit less in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, they think it will only reach 3.3%, down 02 from their January outlook. And in 2018, it was 3.6%. So that's getting people worried. Like, will these trade wars affect the global economy? Will that influence demand in the second half of the year? But as you said, you got to look not just at the headline growth. You've got to break it into the growth of the advanced economies. When you look at it, the advanced economies, so like the United States and Europe, they're the ones that are slowing down. Yeah. But if you look at the developing economies like Southeast Asia, India, China, they're actually similar growth on average to last year. And so our, the outlook for demand hasn't been revised down because the IMF is saying the yeah. world growth is slowing down because yeah. the growth in the places that matter for oil demand is still looking really strong. Like, for instance, China, they're expecting a half million barrels a day of demand growth. And that's, you know, year to date, it's looking like those numbers are good. India's growth is actually really strong. Their economy is growing at 7.3%, and it's looking like 250,000 barrels a day of growth from them. And so at this point, the outlook for the global oil demand is about 1.4 million barrels a day in 2019, actually a little bit higher than last year. So we're going to be over 102 million barrels per day here very soon. I mean, yeah, best, not on an annual average basis, but you're right, on no, a monthly or quarterly. It. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's quite staggering. And this is uh, very interesting in terms of uh, things like the whole debate about climate emissions and electric car penetration. But we've always said it's just not enough to mitigate against this unfathomable quantity of oil, 100 million barrels a day, you know, pushing 102 to make a dent. Well, and that comes down to, you know, will the U.S. be able to continue with these sanctions on Iran? Because if the market gets tight, we all know that Donald Trump doesn't really like Mm. to have high oil prices. And so that's going to factor into things too, right? You know, in next year, let's think forward into 2020. Election year comes, market's tightening up potentially, you know. True. It's quite curious. I mean, on one hand, Trump is putting in these sanctions to squeeze out Iran. On the other hand, he's sending the other signal that we need more supply to pull down uh, price. Yeah, he's got two competing priorities. Why is Trump so interested in acting on Iran? I attended a talk by Brian Hook, special representative for Iran, from the State Department when I was Mm. at Sierra Week. And he kind of gave the perspective why it's so important for the U.S. to act on Iran. He said that, you know, Iran is very good at hiding their nuclear program. They're very close to a nuclear breakout. Mm. Also, 
when Obama lifted the sanctions for that couple of years, all the money that was generated basically, they believe, went to creating instability in the region by supporting bad actors in Syria and Yemen, by supporting terrorism around the world. And so that's why the U.S. wants to drive the exports to zero. They think that that will uh, get rid of terrorism and Mm -hmm. global instability. And so, you know, Trump is going to be balancing those concerns with the concerns around the price of oil. So it's hard to have competing priorities, but that's what's going to make it very difficult right. to sort of figure out what the U.S. is well, going to do as next. as I said earlier, the geopolitics is back. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the geopolitics of oil and uh, the always looming issues of potential conflict in that region are, are still there. That's right. Yeah. And all things the same, you just took a million barrels a day out of the market. So although we still look like we have a well-supplied market with Saudi Arabia still having a million barrels of spare capacity, we have a million less barrels of spare capacity than we did. So all things the same, the geopolitical premium for the price of oil has gone up because there's just less flexibility right. and less spare capacity in the right. system. Okay. So just to sort of wrap up in terms of the supply and demand, and we'll move on to price. So we've got uh, supply that is artificially constrained, geopolitically constrained, although we have to watch what OPEC is going to do because they have some spare capacity that could offset that. And then we also have the Permian, which is a free market source of oil that may come on stronger than we think. And so what does that mean? I mean, I think that things are in a delicate balance on the supply side. Yeah, they really are. I mean, it looks well supplied. But if there's a change here in terms of an outage somewhere in the world that we can't see today, or Venezuela even losing more production, which is totally possible, or uh, demand comes in stronger, we could see the market tighten up. So so our view is that the market is well supplied. That's right. Even with these Iranian barrels out, it looks pretty good. It looks well supplied. In the absence of some major outage uh, that could occur right. um, and really tighten up the market. I think the market looks pretty well supplied this year. But there is variability with known unknowns on the supply side, but not so much on the demand side. I mean, the demand side looks like it's still pretty solid, growing a million plus barrels a day. We don't know it's a 1.2, 1.4, but it's not being affected by either substitution with electric vehicles. It's not being affected so much by... Uh, slow down an economy that much. I mean, it's still roaring ahead. It's looking good. I mean, here we are in the beginning of May, so we're four months into the year, and the advanced economies are slowing a little bit, but the developing economies look look like they're still growing pretty well. So right. I would say that's looking like a more certain part of the supply-demand right. picture. So supply minus demand equals the driver of price. So price is looking pretty strong in the near term. I think where we are, or a little bit higher, mm-hmm. is is something you can think about in terms of the range for prices this year. If we had not seen these Iranian barrels go out of the market, I think prices mm-hmm. uh, would be a little bit in a lower range. But, you know, this isn't enough to cause a, a real run-up in prices at this point without a big outage. Right. Well, let's, say we had a, let's say we had a real softening of demand and we had one of these variables on the supply side blow out. So now all of a sudden the price is falling back. It's interesting to think about uh, some of the tests we've had of the lower end of the range. I mean, it seems to me like the lower range is around 40 bucks, isn't it? I mean, there's all sorts of different ways you can come at that, isn't it? Well, and we saw in 2016 when we had an average price of $42 a barrel at WTI, but a Brent price was almost Mm -hmm. the same at that point. Those two prices were very similar, that a lot of public oil and gas companies had negative cash flow in that you know, the money that they were generating was not enough to pay for all their costs. Then they didn't have any extra money to be able to drill wells or invest in new projects. So that isn't a sustainable price because eventually supply is going to come down in that scenario. 
But the other interesting data point we had was when Saudi Aramco issued some new bonds as part of some financing they needed to buy a petrochemical company. So they 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 had to disclose to the financial markets their cash flow statements and their financial health. Right, in order to uh, raise the capital they needed for these bonds. By the way, uh, just as a side, a lot of people talk about, you know, not a lot of appetite for investors uh, for investing in oil and gas or, you know. Certainly not here. (laughs) Yeah, the the bonds were, some reports I read said there was over $100 billion of interest in in this. Right, so, Um, I mean, mean, that's that's skewed, right? $100 billion of interest in Saudi Arabia, no interest here. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, and, you know, I read through the 400... I wouldn't say I read all of it. I skimmed through the 460-page prospectus. But one thing interesting, you know, when you see these prospectuses, companies have to outline every single single thing that could go wrong with their company, all the risks and things. But there were some pretty unique ones for this one, you know, that the hydrocarbon law codified the kingdom's ability to set the maximum output of hydrocarbons and that at any time the kingdom could decide, you know, to cut the production significantly. And obviously this would have implications for investors. So, you know, even with the fact that this is a company that could cut their production, you know, greatly tomorrow and doesn't really have full control over their production right. level, so there's that, still a lot of interest. Yeah, so they're alluding to their historical role as a swing producer that they could decide to cut production, which would affect their revenues, which would affect their cash flow and their ability to pay the bonds. Is that yeah, that's a risk to uh, these people, but people right. still were pretty interested in getting right. the bonds. So. Right. Okay, so they raised the money. They raised the money. So when you go through the prospectus, the interesting thing was there's a couple of really interesting points, but the thing that wasn't covered much that I think is worth talking about is that in 2016, when we had that $43 a barrel that I talked about mm-hmm. uh, and the public companies were losing money, turns out Saudi Aramco had almost no free cash flow that year as well. And they weren't losing money, but there was very little free cash so flow. So basically at 42 bucks, they're break even. That's right. So they can't offset the declines. So oil wells all decline. And right. in order to keep your production flat, you're going to have to, to do reinvest. drilling. Yeah. So even they couldn't sustain their production levels at, at that type of price level. Yeah. So, you know, when we think about the new era we may be in, you know, it's not like the peak oil era where we had $100 oil. We're starting to learn the boundaries, I think, yeah. in terms of where the prices are. And this definitely helps us well, understand maybe where I the mean, that bottom is. boundary of $40, you can come at it through many different intersecting perspectives. You know, one is what we just talked about, even a country like Saudi Arabia, the wealthiest of the OPEC countries, can't cut it around $40, $45. Then we've got the global cost curves, you know, draw quite technical economically. Uh, but we know that $40 is kind of a, a, a lower bound. Uh, and then what we see in, in North America, especially in the United States, I mean, when the price of oil goes sub 50, the rigs go home. It's, it's become much mm-hmm. of a just-in-time delivery system, right? Yeah, we're seeing that above 50 bucks, there seems to be activity. Yeah. And, and definitely at 65 last year, yeah. a lot of activity in the yeah. United States and here in Canada, too, yeah. for the non-oil sand yeah. set. So the bottom range of oil price in the world is probably about $45. And the upper end depends upon geopolitics and all these other machinations yeah. in the world. What Donald Trump can live with. What he can and can't live with. So uh, other interesting things to talk about, they they had their reserves outlined. And uh, so that was interesting. It was pretty consistent, I think, with what a lot of other views about 200 billion barrels of crude oil. This is the Saudis. Yeah. And just for the record, Canada's oil reserves are 170 billion barrels. And so that's the oil sands, just, dominantly. Just, yeah, dominantly the oil sands. So we're just mm-hmm. narrowly behind Saudi Arabia. Right. And Venezuela's official numbers uh, are the highest at 300 billion barrels. But as we all yeah. know, it's going to be pretty hard to develop those reserves, uh, at least the way things are in the country today. 
Yeah, there's a lot of oil in the world. That's not the issue. As I say, below ground, we technically we know how to get the oil to market. It's the above ground issues. And when you have issues such as you have an extreme in Venezuela, or you have social dividends such as you have to pay in uh, countries like uh, Saudi Arabia, where the oil companies state owned. Um, there are all these above ground costs that we have to factor in when we think about, well, what is the bottom end of the, the oil price and uh, the economics of the cost curves and such is that, uh, again, I think it's uh, the price of oil dips to 45 bucks. You're at the bottom end of the thing. It can go momentarily below that, yeah. but not long. Most perceptions was that Saudi Aramco would have lower costs. But when you actually go through the details in the document, you'll see that of the revenue that they make, Almost half of it is going to government take in the form of royalties and income tax. Right. And so, you know, maybe in theory, they could break even at $20 a barrel. You often see that quoted. But when you add that government take on, you know, it's more like $40 a barrel. Yeah. So where do our listeners get this gripping prospectus? <laughs> Why don't I put a link to it okay, in our right. show yeah. notes? I know you'll all want to <laughs> read it. It's fascinating. There's things on their decline rates, how much money they're actually spending, yeah, okay. how much their oil fields. And, Good. you know, I always love this topic, greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. They actually have a fairly big section dedicated to their environmental footprint, and especially as it relates to the Paris Climate Change Agreement and their greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, they have some numbers showing that their average greenhouse gas emissions are just over 30 kilograms of CO2 per barrel. That's about half the average of in the, United, uh, the States. United States in terms of what's refined in the United States, which is a common uh, baseline. And of course, they show that chart that I hate, which shows Canada is quite a bit higher because yeah. they're using those old. Uh, old Stanford model data that doesn't represent their most recent thing. But it is interesting that a national oil company like Saudi Aramco well, would dedicate, you know, that much space to this well, issue. Well, and they have to because, as we said in previous podcasts, it's the investors that are demanding it. It was listed on the London Stock Exchange, and the Europeans and many of the major stock exchange now are, and the institutional investors that buy these securities like the bonds are demanding it. Yeah, and they're talking about things like uh, measures including adding cogens, reducing their methane, getting yeah. rid of flare gas systems, putting in energy efficiency. So they're spending money, it seems, on, on reducing their environmental footprint. So it sounds like we have to talk about emissions. Yeah. So that's our next podcast. That'll be our next podcast. Well, it's been a great discussion on oil prices and the supply and demand situation. It looks like we've got a pretty good outlook to the end of the year, I would say, given all that we've talked about for the oil price. Yeah, it's definitely looking a lot better than it was at the beginning yeah. of the year. Yeah. Uh, here we are above $60. And I think the way the market's uh, looking today will probably stay in, in okay. that range. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And if you'd like this podcast, please rate us on your app and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com. <laughs>